If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Titus for our time together this evening. I'm going to begin reading in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us this evening. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. And what we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. When I started seminary, I thought that it would be very hard to start ministry well and very difficult to finish ministry, or very easy to finish ministry well. But not long after starting as the pastor of this church, one of the things that I quickly learned is that it is very easy to start ministry well. It is much more difficult to finish ministry well. And that has only been reinforced for me by the litany and lineup of my classmates and fellow professors, not to mention friends and pastors that I've admired who are no longer in professional ministry of any kind. For one reason or another, sometimes because it was too difficult or sometimes because of sin in their life, they are now in positions where they are no longer serving the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons that we have this internship is to reinforce what my present self wishes somebody would have said to my past self, my young self, to be able to encourage and to help and to reinforce and to teach that the word of God will never come powerfully to our hearers until it resides deeply in our own hearts and has come powerfully to our own hearts. Paul does this exact same thing in the book of Titus as he teaches Titus that you cannot have future hope without present godliness. Three simple points will frame our time together this evening. And though this is a sermon primarily to the front of this middle row, it is useful for you to overhear and to be exhorted as we all grow together in our understanding of what it means to have people set aside for gospel ministry at a variety of different levels and skills and offices. Paul's introduction, God's promise, Timothy's faith. Notice first Paul's introduction. Look with me again in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life. Paul begins this letter just like he does all of his letters with a very simple greeting. Paul, servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. But if we are careful readers of the Bible, we will begin to ask ourselves, why did Paul begin by introducing himself in a personal letter to a man that he had discipled and had traveled with in ministry? Titus. Hadn't Titus already known who Paul was? Hadn't they traveled from Jerusalem to 
a variety of different places doing ministry alongside one another on the missionary journeys? Hadn't Titus served as an emissary of the Apostle Paul when he was taking his letter to the Corinthians? Why would Titus need to be remembered of who Paul was? He didn't. But when we look closer and read carefully, we see that even though this is a personal letter to verse 4, Titus, it is also an open letter as the last verse of this very epistle teaches us. If you have your Bible, turn with me to chapter 3 very quickly and look in verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Paul lets them know that this grace is to be with all of them. Or as a good southerner from Alabama would say, grace be with y'all. From the very beginning of this letter, Paul had every intention of this letter being read out loud to the church. It is to instruct Titus and the church. It is to be read by Titus and to the church. They need to know exactly what is in this letter, even though the primary audience of this letter is church leadership, so that they all might be built up in the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. Friends, this is why you are here for an intern graduation. It behooves you to know more about what a faithful pastor is, what they look like, how they act, what they teach, so that you are able to discern when you have an unfaithful pastor in front of you. One of your primary job descriptions and one of your primary job descriptions as you equip the people that will be in your ministry care is to teach them what a pastor is so that they know what to look for, not only in the way that they teach, but also in the way that you live so that they can see it lived out in their life. From the very beginning, Paul is very concerned that Titus and all of the people present would know exactly what a faithful gospel minister is. So he introduces himself, not for Titus' benefit, because Titus knows exactly who he is, but he wants them all to hear that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ with a very specific job. Verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul wanted them to know that his ministry as a servant of God, that his preaching as an apostle of Jesus Christ was to make converts, to literally to go and to call in those who are the elect of God. He is to, verse 1, teach them that they might come to a knowledge of the truth. It's not just any type of knowledge that Titus was to give. It's not just any type of knowledge that we impart to these men here on the front row. It's not simply facts and names and dates and locations as if that is sufficient for a gospel ministry. His ministry, his preaching, his teaching, your ministry, your preaching, your teaching is to focus on a knowledge that verse 1 accords with godliness. The kind of knowledge that not only calls people into the faith, but also changes them living as ungodly people to be godly people so that they would be the right kind of people in the wrong kind of world. The very way that we began and ended this past internship, reminding these brothers that one of the greatest things that you are to do is to be the right kind of man in a world that is calling you to be all types of different things. And as Paul wrote to Titus and as Paul wrote to Timothy, in those moments when it doesn't look like it's working, when few people show up for the sermons, when relatively few people seem to get converted, when it seems as if the prayers are not being answered, when it seems that things are not going the way that you would intend them to, when the sermons are harder to write than you ever wanted them to be, when the nights are longer and the mornings are earlier, in those moments you are to be the right kind of man in the wrong kind of world and you are to press on because these things 
set apart for the people of God to be ministered to by the man of God will effectively build the church. It just might not look the way that you anticipated. So Paul, he speaks to Titus, and he tells him to press on in this faithful ministry, to be the right kind of man in the wrong kind of world, because the Cretan people, among whom Titus was ministering, were an ungodly bunch of people. Many of them were, verse 10, insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They, verse 16, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Paul tells Titus and the Christians in Crete that the Christian teaching should give people a knowledge, a knowledge that actually changes their lives. Brothers, at the beginning of your ministries, you must ask yourselves, does your teaching do that? Does your teaching give people a knowledge that actually changes the way that they live? Does your teaching prepare people to live wisely in an unwise and ungodly world? And brothers, if it does, there will be times when people do not like your teaching. And there will be times when your teaching hits far too close to home for some of the people who are sitting before you. And there will be people who do not want to come back to the congregations that you serve. And there will be people who do not want to sit through the Bible studies that you lead. And there will be times when the gospel will offend as you call people, not only unbelievers, but believers, to simplify their life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that their lives might be built around the church and not the church around their lives. One of the dangers of an internship like the one that we have here, or for really any type of ministry in general, is that people may become more knowledgeable teachers who get very good at simply disseminating knowledge. They're very good at knowing things and learning how to study and being able to speak in front of people, but not necessarily giving knowledge that accords with godliness in the lives of their hearers. And that is dangerous. Not only for their hearers, but for the teachers themselves. Brothers, biblical teaching and biblical preaching, according to the apostle, informs the mind so that the lives in front of you might be changed. But brothers, here's the hard truth that your church will only be as godly as you are. That you can change their minds and persuade them to live different ways, but if they look at your life and they see a man who is unshaped by the teaching in front of him, slow to repent and quick to be angry, refusing to learn and unwilling to work with others, no matter how excellent your sermons are or how long you serve throughout the week, you will undercut everything that you are doing in the life of the church. Teaching is not information transfer. At the beginning of your internship and at the end of your internship, you must know that. Teaching is not information transfer. It is not simply getting enough facts over to the people so that if they have all of the right facts, they will do all of the right one things in their lives. You are to call them to a godly way of living. Biblical teaching, biblical preaching, according to the apostle, informs the mind, and that only happens when the teacher makes the connection between the knowledge of the truth, and godliness explicit. Brothers, have you made that explicit in the lives of the people that you have served or will begin to serve here in the life of this congregation? Is that true in your marriage? Is that true in the aspiring marriage? Is that true in the way that you're living with your roommates and your friends? Or have you simply suggested it? Have you made it explicit in your living by being the right kind of man in the wrong kind of world? Paul tells us his job as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ 
was not merely to disseminate knowledge all over the ancient world, but to minister and to preach and to teach in such a personal way that an intimate knowledge would actually take root deep in the lives of those who were before him so that their lives would be forever changed because you cannot have future hope without present godliness. Which is why he says, verse 2, in hope of eternal life. Those who have, verse 1, come into the faith by means of this knowledge have actually produced a type of godliness that can, verse 2, have eternal life. Their faith is confirmed because their knowledge produces godliness and that gives them hope of heaven. Brothers, knowledge will not produce assurance in the lives of your hearers. Knowledge will not produce assurance in your lives. You can read all of the right books and write all of the right papers and go to all of the right conferences and have met all of the right people throughout all of the right internships and still not have assurance because there is a disconnect between everything that you've learned and how you are living, which is why we are calling on Wednesdays and Sundays to be men of integrity, not just in the way that you live pure lives online, but whole and complete so that the person behind the scenes and in public, at home and on stage and everywhere else that you might be, whether you are serving behind this sacred desk or you are serving behind a desk reading and writing a paper, that in all of those moments you would be men of integrity, whole, whether you are serving downtown and doing masonry work or you are in Chicago representing us for the next nine months in every way that we would be men of integrity in our lives. This faith is confirmed because it produces godliness. But Paul says the knowledge which accords with godliness gives hope of eternal life, eternal life, as we'll see in a moment, guaranteed by God himself. Paul's introduction, notice second, God's promise. Look at verse 2. And hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God promised it, so Paul preached it. But what did God promise? Verse 2, hope of eternal life. Hope, not despair. Life, not death. But not simply a more hopeful, better life. He promised eternal life for his people. God promised eternal life to all of those who have been changed by the knowledge of the truth. Friends, in a culture that is filled with so many liars and people who peddle God's word and people who have been hurt by lies from the church, Paul tells Titus and these Christians that God, verse 2, who never lies, has promised hope of heaven. He has promised eternal life. And God always keeps his promises. Not much has changed in nearly 2,000 years. Some of you here tonight, like perhaps some of you on this front row, have been hurt by people, deeply hurt by people who have lied. Promises were made that were not kept. Vows were made that were broken. Truths that were actually untruths were spoken. Let the words of the apostle comfort you tonight. God who never lies, promised before the ages began hope of eternal life for all of his chosen people and for everyone who trusts in his Christ. In a culture filled with liars, Paul tells Titus and these Christians that they can trust God because God never lies. Brothers, as Eugene said earlier, he spoke rightly and perhaps better than he even knew that to be mastered by this book from the God who never lies 
is the most useful thing that you can do throughout the rest of your internship and as you finish this internship. And for everyone present, if you learn nothing here at Christ Church Westchester, know this, that to know this book and to be mastered by this book from the God who never lies will put you on a path where you can have assurance and a knowledge that accords with godliness. Brothers, you can trust God, the God who never lies. You can trust Him when you're tired. You can trust Him when you feel like you can't do it. You can trust Him when everyone gives up on you. You can trust Him when people don't believe in you. You can trust Him all of the time. He is always faithful. You may not be able to trust anyone else. Literally everyone in your life might fail you. All of your family and friends might turn on you. But God, who never lies, has promised that He's always for you. He is never against you. And He has demonstrated that by His work on the cross. That He loves you, that He is for you, that He is never against you, and He will be with you to the end. And brothers, He will care for you. On those days when ministry is harder than you ever wanted it to be, remember, that the way is long, but God is faithful, and he will see you through. Dear brothers, let the knowledge of the truth fill you with hope, because God never lies. A hope, the apostle tells us, verse 3, that has been manifested at the proper time, in his word, through the preaching, with which he has been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God made promises. Promises before time began that were revealed to the world in God's good time, through the preaching, the heralding of the gospel, the preaching of the good news that now goes out into the world and it reverberates through this community. The reason that people belittle preaching is because they have never heard good preaching. But when they hear good, faithful preaching, they stop belittling it and they become thankful for it because it commands them to do what they would not do, repent and trust and believe and hope and cling to Christ. Brothers, Herald that message every week, all the time, to everyone, and never stop doing it. Whether it's to your kids, whether it's to your friends, whether it's to people in your family, or from this sacred desk. Herald that message of what God, our Savior, verse 3, has done. And what has He done? He has moved history to save your souls. Did you see it in the text? Paul tells us here, from eternity to eternity, before time began, he set his electing gaze on the people that he so loved so that in the fullness of time, God our Savior, verse 4, sent forth Jesus our Savior to take on human nature and to live the life that we could never live and to die the death that we all deserve to die because of the many sins that we have committed so that if we repent and cling to Christ our Savior, we might have hope of eternal life. Brothers, do you have hope of eternal life? It is not enough to preach hope of eternal life. You yourself must labor to keep yourselves in the faith, hoping in eternal life. I am not asking you, Tim and Eugene, if you have knowledge of eternal life, because at this point, I know what you know. And Huck and Nate and Maxwell, I am not asking you if you are prepared to have knowledge, because I know what you will be forced to read. But the reality is, is I am asking you, do you have hope of eternal life? You cannot have future hope of eternal life without present godliness. You will be of no use to me or to Dan and to Isaac or to anyone in this congregation, whether you stay or in Chicago or over the next year, 
if you are not men who are godly, if you get nothing from this internship, be men of character. Be men who are not afraid to repent. Be men who are not afraid to call someone alongside you and say, before this becomes the type of thing that destroys me and everyone around me, help me. Brothers, we love you. And be men who are whole. So let me ask you, have you and have you trusted in God our Savior? You can do that tonight, even here at an intern graduation, if you turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. But these words were not primarily for unbelievers. The reality is that Paul is writing as a believer to a believer for believers. These words are for believers because in a culture filled with all types of liars, Paul knew that it would be hard to believe anything that anyone says is true. So he tells Titus, in these Christians, that they can trust God who never lies, that they can have future hope if they are presently godly. Paul's introduction, God's promise. Notice third, Titus' faith. Look in verse 4. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. In the opening verses of this letter, Paul tells Titus that Christian hope is rooted in God's promises made before the world began, before he encourages him in his labor. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. He is, verse 4, a true child because this faith is issued forth in godliness. That's how Paul knows he's one of his companions. He's one of his men that he can trust in because of the way that he has lived his life. It's the reason that he can have comfort because of what he sees. Like I look at this front row across all of it and see men who are laboring for godliness. He is a true child of godliness that will maintain as he continues to lead a godliness that he will need himself so that he can pass it on to other people. With the responsibility of the internship comes the responsibility of passing that on to other people. This is not so that you can be better, but it's so that everyone you interact with might be having this message passed on to them and so that they might hear it from your lips and see it in your lives so that they might be changed and encouraged to continue in this type of godliness. Godliness that he passes on as now he picks up the baton, verse 5, and appoints elders in every town, a godliness that comes from a common faith. It is a shared faith, but it seems to me that it is also important for us to notice that this is a common faith, which is why I'm preaching this message that I've preached before to you tonight. It is a common faith. Titus doesn't have to do something extraordinary to build the church. He needs to have a long obedience in the same direction, doing a lot of ordinary, common, everyday ministerial things that they don't teach you in seminary and no one will ever give you credit for, that you'll probably never post online. But these are the types of things, common, faithful, ordinary acts over a long time that build your character and strengthen the church, and that is what you are to pass on to people. A common faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage him, to tell him, you don't have to do something extraordinary. You don't have to make a name for yourself. You don't have to leave an indelible mark on the world. God knows you by name. He sees you for who you are. 
He has called you out of darkness into light. He has set you apart as one of his children. He will use you mightily if you are faithful and whether you are ever recognized for it or hold a formal office is irrelevant. That you can do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God with a very common faith and the obedience that is long in the same direction. God uses, friends, a common faith of ordinary Christians to do the extraordinary work of calling people into the kingdom of Christ and strengthening the church of the Lord Jesus Christ through sound doctrine. I see it here and I see it in all of you. The things that we never give people credit for. Noah held a training last night and gathered 30 or 40 people so that they might know how to better care for kids. Nick takes phone calls on the way back and forth from work so that he might encourage people that he doesn't have time to meet with. Renee wakes up early so that he can come and meet with contractors. Or Adalia comes to clean and beautify the building. John Beditas comes and cuts our grass, and somehow it takes him two hours without Luke Haldeman's help. What we see is that there are ordinary things that people do, and sometimes it takes a little longer. But it helps, and it builds the church. And it's lots of little things like that. Things that I didn't mention, but things that are actually strengthening the body of Christ that no one sees and no one gives anybody credit for, no one's asking for credit for. Brothers, you don't have to have a PhD, and you don't have to be widely read, and you don't have to publish a book. Brothers, you don't have to be well-spoken, but what you need to do is to have a common faith in the knowledge of the truth that issues forth in a godliness, a godliness for others to see that is consistent with what you preach, because you cannot have future hope without present godliness. I'm praying for a long obedience in the same direction, and as I close, I'm going to just read you a few quotes and give you a few applications. First, in ministry, as we've said before, you will either be godly or you will have to act like you are godly because there is no other way to do gospel ministry. You will either be godly or you will have to do Christian things when you are ungodly Because that is the only way to do the job of ministry. But that is a very dangerous place to be. Be men who are godly. Do not fake godliness. Do not trifle with God. Second, do not be careless with the word of God and zealous for the traditions of others. John Stott wrote in the cross of Christ, there is no alternative to careful exegesis of the text. And that takes time and patience. And sometimes it means you're alone when you'd rather be around others. And sometimes it eats up time that you'd rather give to other things. There is no other way than through the hard labor. Third, preaching is not everything, but it affects everything. It is the trumpet of the church. So whether you're going to train for preaching or now supporting preaching or aspiring to preach, or trying to discern what God might have you do if you might preach. Know that it affects everything. And as John Piper has said, it echoes in every ministry and in every household for joy and strength and love and perseverance. God loves to help the preacher who is desperate to make the word of God plain for the holy happiness of his people. By the blood of Jesus, for the glory of God, he will help you. Fourth, what you might consider mundane and routine is the very heart of your calling ministers of the gospel whether as members of the church or whether aspiring for it 
It is the very heart of your calling to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to administer the life-giving sacraments. Preaching, baptizing, communing may be ordinary, but they are God-ordained. And, as Harold Sneakbell has said, they are never dull. They are sacred acts given by the Holy Spirit who works faith when and where it pleases Him for all who hear the gospel. So week after week, and day after day, and hour after hour, and minute by minute, give yourself to these ordinary things in the life of the church where sinners are forgiven and those who are crushed under the weight of what is going on in their life are encouraged and restored by your mouth and your hands and your prayers. Brothers, be encouraged and be terrified. Lives will be changed because of what you say to people in front of you. Fifth, the minister does not manifestly put his heart into a sermon, as Charles Bridges said. If he does not do that, he will never put his sermon into the hearts of his people. Pompous speech attempts at a theatrical display. It only results in affected emotions, but it is indeed repugnant to the office that you have been called to. Do not simply try to say impressive things. Use your words to build up the body of Christ. We have a speaking God, and He has entrusted to you to be men who carry forth that message, speaking that message. You are imaging God in your speech and in your prayers with words that you write and words that you declare. Sixth, this is another quote that has been helpful to me. Steady, my friends. The burden may seem overwhelming and the labor unbearably hard and long. But in the Lord, your labor is never in vain. You have his word and his promise, and he will see you through. And seventh, be the right kind of man in the wrong kind of world. I don't care if you're ever well known, and I don't care if you ever do, quote, great things. I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of everybody on that front row. I love you, and you are loved by this church. You don't have to impress anybody. You have to be faithful. And when you are weak, we are here for you. Brothers, we invite you to continue in the labor, and we call you to be the right kind of men in the wrong kind of world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these men. We thank you for their work, the work that they have done and the work that some of them will do. I thank you for this church that invests in men like this. Help us to never underestimate how important this investment is. How little by little, a couple interns at a time, we will literally change the culture of our church as they are strengthened, as, as they help us strengthen the membership of this church. We thank you that you have already answered this prayer. We see it in the men who are here tonight serving, men like Dan Mason and Stephen Tipton and Isaac Whitney and Matt Burns and Adam Tardosky, men that we will continue to see it in like Tim Grins and Eugene as we send them out, men like Mark Van Tynes and perhaps others I'm forgetting right now. Father, we thank you and we pray now from Maxwell and for Huck and for Nate.
that you would help them to pick up this baton to be the right kind of men in the wrong kind of world. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?